If you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 17. Paul has arrived in the city of Athens. This week we're only going to look at verses 16 through 21, which is the prelude to Paul's address at the Areopagus. And then we'll look at the actual address next week. We've reached one of those high points in the book of Acts. This is one of those iconic, memorable moments that sticks with you as you read through the book. Paul is going to stand in the same place where Socrates had stood some 400 years earlier and then was forced to drink hemlock. Paul will stand there and introduce the Athenians to their unknown god. As a brief introduction, I want to say that there's not going to be anything in these six verses that is foreign to you. It will all be very familiar. I know this is an ancient city in another country on another continent 2,000 years ago. But what we're going to see will be very familiar. The book of Ecclesiastes has these words in its opening chapter. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You'll be reminded of that today. That what has been is what will be. The desires, the pursuits, the beliefs of men and women has not changed. It will all be very familiar because it has happened before. In this same chapter of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes, and I'm going to paraphrase him. He says, Is there anything of which, in, of which it can be rightly said, this is new? No. It has been already in the ages before us. The things we do, the things we say, the things we think, they've already been thought and done and said in the ages before us. So Athens should be quite familiar to you. Maybe even it might be a mirror. So let's pray and then read our text. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would see this morning that we would see rightly ourselves and we would also have a right vision of you. I pray that you would speak through your word. If there's anything I say that is unhelpful to your people or wrong, may it be forgotten and never spoken of again. But Father, if your truth is preached to your people, would it land and resonate in our hearts? that we might be changed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text, Acts 17, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. The first thing we see in this text is that Paul is provoked. He's walking around the city, not being your typical tourist. He's not ooing and eyeing over the architecture. He's not wearing a funny hat or an Athens t-shirt. Instead, he's passing idol after idol, and Luke tells us that he gets angry. His spirit was provoked. You know, it was said of Athens that it was easier to meet a god or goddess than it was to meet an actual person. Now, how does that make sense? Well, at the time that statement was made, there were about 10,000 residents in Athens, and there were was about 30,000 statues of different gods and goddesses. It's a three-to-one ratio. You know, if you've visited D.C., I mean, we'll say that D.C. is a city filled with monuments and statues. D.C. doesn't have anything on Athens. I know D.C. is a much larger population, so that might not work. But just think about our own city. We're pretty close. Athens had 10,000 people. Corinth has somewhere between 14 and 15,000. Imagine what it would look like to have 45,000 statues and monuments scattered throughout the city. Three per resident. What would it look like? The streets being lined with idols every park, every garden, every green space would be filled. That's how it was in Athens. Everywhere you looked, there was a statue of a god or a goddess. This is one of the things that set Athens apart from other places. Every city had idols, just no one had as many as Athens had. The amount was dumbfounding. For example, I have a cowbell down in my office. Some of you like that, some of you don't. That aside, it doesn't matter. Uh, But I I could uh, ring that cowbell, and nothing is unique about that. Other people have cowbells in their offices. But what is unique is to go to a football game and hear 55,000 cowbells ringing. That's a picture of Athens. 
Every city had idols. Every city had temples. Athens just had way more than everyone else. And this greatly bothers Paul. Luke tells us he has a sudden spasm or outburst of anger. His spirit is provoked because he sees the absolute stranglehold that idolatry has on this city. Calvin commented that Paul was particularly incensed at Athens because he saw that idolatry had a greater hold there than almost anywhere else. He continues, The world was full of idols at the time. The pure worship of God could be found nowhere. There were countless monstrous superstitions everywhere. But Satan had made the city of Athens worse than any other city. There is an especially tight grip on Athens. And it is seen in this overabundance, this absurd amount of idols. Paul is angry. He's angry because the city is obviously spiritually hungry. And yet they are worshiping things that will never fill that hunger. They're worshiping things that will ultimately lead to their death. I was reminded of a statement the Lord makes in Jeremiah 2, where he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what Athens is filled with. You have a bunch of thirsty people and have a city filled with broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this provokes Paul. You remember I began by saying that everything we're going to see will be familiar. You might think, all right, John, you've lost me already. Now, maybe that's true if you're only thinking of idols as little golden statues that people pray to or worship. We may not have statues lining our streets, but I want to make a case that there are idols all around us. Let's define our terms. What is idolatry? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, what were we at this morning? We did question 89. In a few weeks, we'll get to question 95, which says, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. You own something, you want something, you invent something or create something, and you place it alongside of the true God or in place of the true God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Right. So if that's the case, what has potential to be an idol? Anything. Everything can be an idol. This idea of idolatry, I know we often think of it as being explicitly religious, where we have a Buddha statue and we bow down and 
pray to that statue. But that is, what we're talking about goes far beyond that. Last week we sang, Be Thou My Vision, and we sang these words. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. High King of Heaven, my treasure Thou art. Here's a question. What is first in your heart? What is first in your heart? There is a place at the core of your being, a place that should rightly be reserved for the King of Heaven. What have you put there? It could be all kinds of things. Uh, Tim Keller writes a book called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, I think this is, the, this is in the intro. He says, counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, beauty or brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue. Or even success in the Christian ministry. Are we not surrounded by idols? What are those things we feel like we can't live without? We've got limited amounts of energy and emotional bandwidth and money. But what do we give our energy and our emotions, and our cash. What do we give those things to without a second thought? If we can identify that, we'll probably find an idol. Teller, uh, Teller, Keller continues. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. What would that be for you? What's something so important that you think this thing is what gives my life meaning? This thing is what makes me feel valuable and secure. If you can name it, there you will find an idol. Uh, in Athens, the highest point of the city was the Acropolis. The Acropolis, the Acropolis literally means top of city. It's just the highest point. And at this high point, uh, they built the Parthenon. If you want to know what the Parthenon looks like, you can go to Nashville and you can see a replica. I think it's Centennial Park. I'm not sure. In Nashville, you can, you can go and see it. Uh, and this, the Parthenon being at the highest point 
It was situated in a place that no matter where you were in the entire city, you could see it. Even when you're outside the city gates, approaching the city, you could look up and see the Parthenon. And they put it there to communicate, this is what we value. Look up there. This is what we are about. I was talking with Foster about this, our missionary we support who is in Italy, and he's traveled to Athens. He's walked these streets. He's been to the Acropolis. And he made, he made the comment. He said, the biggest things we build tend to demonstrate where we place our greatest values in society. So you think, what do we value as a society? Well, what are the massive things we build? You know, it's, it's interesting. College football starting back this week. I'll pick on my own team, uh, just to be fair. You can be far off, outside of the Starkville city limits, out on the highway, especially at night. And when the lights are on, guess what you can see for miles? A football stadium. My hometown, you can drive through and you see it and it communicates, this is what we are about. This is what we value. This is what we get excited about. My hometown has its own Parthenon. It's called Davis Wade Stadium. Now, I don't believe there is anything inherently wrong with football or going to a game. But the question has to be, has this thing, like everything else we've talked about, has this thing rooted its way to the center of my heart? Has this thing found its way into the place where only the high king of heaven should be? Football is a lot of fun to watch, but it makes a poor God, especially if you're a State or Ole Miss fan. Family, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren are wonderful gifts from God, but they make poor gods themselves. Your job, your career is a good and necessary thing, but it'll make a poor God. And we could do this all day. And we'd never finish. Because when one idol fails, we just go to the next thing and say, oh, well, maybe this will do it. And we go on and on and on. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. And this is what has happened in Athens, and it's what Paul is reacting to. Our idols are hidden in our hearts. Theirs were out on the sidewalk. Verse 17 tells us that Paul reasoned with them in the synagogue, with Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. So he's going to the synagogue, proving from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, but we also see him go out into the marketplace and talk with your average Joe. You're just standard, run-of-the-mill pagans living in Athens. 
And he talked to anyone who would give him time. And then in verse 17, Luke gives us some specific uh, details about some people who engage with Paul. He calls them Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and I want to talk about both of these. I'm sure most of us have heard the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is a very Epicurean statement. Those are some of the people Paul met in Athens. They believed that the meaning of life was found in avoiding pain and enjoying pleasure. If it felt bad, it was bad. If it felt good, it was good. Now, you had your most basic, most crude form of this. It was just straight up hedonism. There's a group from Cyrene who would gorge themselves on wine and food, and they would do so until they couldn't eat any more. And then they would make themselves throw up, and they would do it all over again. And that didn't apply to food. That also... uh, was part of their sexuality. Again, nothing you're going to hear this morning is going to be unfamiliar. Now, that group is not exactly who Paul is talking to. Paul's going to talk to some slightly more refined hedonists. They were a little less frat party and a little more cultured. They aren't seeking pleasure with reckless abandon uh, because they knew something. They knew that at the end of this road, there are two options. Think of a dog catching a fire truck. Um, At the end of this road, there are two options. The first option is I get there. I chase pleasure and I finally get to the end and I realize I, I have not found what I was seeking and I'm frustrated. It's like the dog just trying to catch the fire truck and he's never able to catch it and he just becomes frustrated. That was one option. They can go down this road of just chasing pleasure and they'd never catch it and be frustrated. The other option was to actually catch it. The dog catches the fire truck and then sits there not knowing what to do with it. We can pursue pleasure to the extent where when we do find it, we become bored with it. They never wanted to reach that point. I think the hope was that they would just die before they reached that point. So how could we moderate? How can we slow our pace so that we never get there? Those were the Epicureans. Their spiritual views were pretty much materialistic. If there is a God or gods, they're far away and they're uninvolved. And this world really is all there is. There's no purpose, no soul, no spirit, no afterlife. And so just enjoy the good things now while you can. Is this idea familiar to you? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This life is all there is. You only go around once. I think uh, the, using the phrase or the word bucket list is, is Epicurean. 
I've got to make a list of all these things I want to do before I kick the bucket, because when I kick the bucket, it's over. Or uh, a phrase from youth ministry, I remember a phrase the junior high boys were saying in 2015. They would say, YOLO, which means what? You only live once. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. You only live once. Or uh, Dave Matthews sang about this in two-step. He said, celebrate we will because life is short but sweet for certain. Right? This is the chief end of life for the Epicureans. <coughs> Pursue things that make us feel good. Avoid things that make us feel bad. And hope for the best. How do we talk like that? How do we live like that? I mean, none of us enjoys pain. Something for us to think about. You also have the Stoics. The Stoics were opposite of the Epicureans. They were pantheists, which means they believed that everything was God. And if everything is God, then whatever happens to you is your destiny. This is a very fatalistic view of life. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, The Stoics believed that everything in the world happens according to fixed mechanistic causes. There is no such thing as human freedom except at a very limited point. They believed man has no power to influence his life. However, man can control his attitude about what happens. He can be bitter, discouraged, defeated by what life throws his way, or he can have the attitude that nothing will get him down. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. Where have we seen this? How have we talked like this? You know, the phrase, K, Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. We've got a dumbed down way of saying that. We'll say, it is what it is. Right? We can't control the circumstances. All we can control is how we react. There's a Stoic philosopher named Epictetus. And he said, there is only one way to happiness. And that is to cease worrying about things which are beyond the power of of our will, right? We can't change it. If we can't do anything about it, just don't worry about it. That's Stoic philosophy. Now, this brought to mind something uh, that has the name of a prayer. If it is a prayer, it's not a Christian prayer. It is a Stoic prayer. And if you have this hanging up in your home, just I don't, I'm not shaming you. I'm just saying this is not a Christian prayer. This is a Stoic prayer. How many of you... I've heard of the serenity prayer. It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. That's stoicism. That's who Paul is interacting with. 
You've got the more upper class folks who are pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain, and their wealth allowed them to do that. And then you have the lower class who didn't have that option, and so they're just seeking happiness by not worrying about the things they can't change and just react well and just be tough. That's who Paul's interacting with. And no doubt he's arguing how the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses the plight of humanity in a superior way than both Epicureanism and Stoicism. What was their reaction? Well, in the end, they're going to take him to the Areopagus, which is about 50 yards away from the Parthenon on this rocky outcropping. It served as an outdoor courtroom. And Paul will be taken there to share this strange new teaching. And uh, some quick word nerd info if uh, it's a bit confusing to you, there, this, the Areopagus is a hill where there's a temple for the god Ares built, right? Areopagus simply means hill of Ares, right? Ares is a Greek god. What's the Roman equivalent to Ares? Anyone remember? Mars, okay? So this is also called Mars Hill. Uh, there, are some, there are some famous churches named after this place. Areopagus, the hill of Ares, or Mars, Mars Hill. That's where they're going to take Paul, and we'll see that next week. But here's what I want to end with. Something that was said in the marketplace. We see it halfway through verse 18. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They called him a babbler. What does that make you think of? babbling brook, someone who talks incessantly. But that's, that's not the exact meaning. The exact meaning of a, a babbler in the Greek is a seed picker. And that's not a, a little kid going through a watermelon, getting all the seeds out. The idea is a bird hopping around in the yard or a chicken out in the yard just pecking over and over and over again. Is this food? Is this food? Is this food? And that's the idea. There's a person who is going from one thing to the next, looking for something new. Maybe this will work. Maybe this will bring contentment. This is something new. This is interesting. That's what they mean by babbler. That's how they describe Paul, this seed picker who lacks the understanding and wisdom that they themselves have, and he thinks he's found something new. And this is crazy ironic, isn't it? They're the ones who are accusing Paul of having something new, but this is what they're obsessed with. They're obsessed with the next new thing. A new philosophy, a new God, a new belief. They're calling Paul a babbler while they have 30,000 idols in their city, and yet they want to know about this new teaching that Paul speaks of. Luke provides some commentary in verse 21. He says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They're the robin hopping around the yard looking for...
for food. They're the raven looking for that next shiny object to add to their collection. And again, this is very familiar. We can be obsessed with keeping up with the next new thing. We change our social media bios and profile pictures to reflect the next new thing. We watch for news to hear about the next new thing. The academic world is constantly seeking the next new thing. And so you get bizarre PhD dissertations which will argue that Jesus was really the leader of a psychedelic mushroom cult. But we give credits and credibility to people if they come up with something new. It's something we admire. We're thinking like the Athenians. But how do we end today? Just got a few more sentences. We need to end by remembering that Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God and he does not change. And neither does his gospel. We don't update it. We don't add to it. We don't sprinkle it with a touch of modern. We don't throw out the antiquated, out-of-date aspects of the faith. We are not looking for the big next new Christian thing. All we need, all Christians have ever needed, is what is right before us on this table. The broken body and shed blood of the Son of God for sinners. That's the answer. It's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. It's not K Sarah Sarah. It's not a new discovery or idea. What we need today is what we have always needed to be reconciled to a holy God from whom we are separated by our sin. And so we come. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a picture. Thinking of a city that had tens of thousands of worthless dead idols that accomplished nothing for them except further condemnation. And in comparison to that, we have the arms of Jesus, whereas this hymn writer 
correctly states there are 10,000 charms. And they are freely available to any that would come. To any that would cry out to you in faith and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have looked a thousand different places and a thousand different ways and angles to find that thing which will bring fulfillment and satisfaction to my soul. But Father, may I finally turn to you. May you rightly be first in my heart. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.